Hello, I'm Clement Paligaru, and welcome to Ear to Asia, the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with researchers who focus on Asia and its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. In this episode, the purchasing power of piety in Indonesia. Indonesia can boast more Muslims than any other country on the globe. But at the same time, Indonesia's 260 million people who live on more than 6,000 islands stretched across 5,000 kilometers are highly culturally diverse. Indonesia has experienced considerable economic growth over the last two decades, with a sharp rise in the number of people becoming upwardly mobile and joining the middle class. Not unexpectedly, this has been accompanied by growing consumerism. However, unlike in the West, where material wealth and consumerism seem to have contributed to a more secular and less religious society, Indonesia's burgeoning middle-class Muslims have become more conservative and more pious. This Islamic morality is part of a phenomenon some observers refer to as the conservative turn. Indonesia media expert Dr. Inaya Rahmani has been examining this trend closely. She joins us on this episode of Ear to Asia to discuss how and why Indonesia's Muslim middle class has become more religiously conservative and what this trajectory means for minorities of other faiths in the island republic. Dr. Rahmani is a lecturer in the Department of Communication, Faculty of Social and Political Sciences, Universitas Indonesia, and head of the Communication Research Centre in the same university. She's the author of the 2016 book Mainstreaming Islam in Indonesia, Television, Identity and the Middle Class, published by Pelgrave Macmillan. Inaya is visiting the University of Melbourne as part of the Faculty of Arts Indonesia Initiative and is based at Asia Institute. Inaya, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. How rapidly has Indonesia's middle class been growing and what is the projection for 2020? Very rapidly. In 1999, only 25% of the population were classified as the middle class. By 2010, it grew into 45% of the population. By 2020, if the growth is maintained, then it would, according to McKenzie, uh, reach 85%. Although some might think that this number is exaggerated, other research uh, such as by the Boston Consulting Group, uh, says that by 2020 it would reach 141 million people. So that is virtually half of the population. So to say that the majority of Indonesians will be middle class by 2020 is a safe assumption. And what are the economic drivers for this enormous and, and still rapidly growing middle class? Uh, by the late 80s, roughly, there was more open policies to open markets uh, around the world. And Indonesia is part of that global neoliberal uh, reorganization of economies. And in the past 30 years or so, there have been massive privatization of public institutions. Uh, you can see it in education sectors, you can see it in housing, you can see it in health, you can see it in telecommunications, and all of these sectors uh, contribute to creating a culture of consumerism among the expanding middle class. 
And can you just expand on it when it comes to the actual lives and, and lifestyles of the growing middle class? How has that actually changed? I've written about this in my book and several other articles that such rapid changes that is experienced by large sections of the middle class, it creates, it instills a sense of anxiety in people about how to respond to these fast changes. It goes out in the way they consume products. It could be global products. It could be global products manufactured in Indonesia. It could be in the form of buying your property. And finding a sense of safety in such fast changes has resulted in some of the middle class, because they are majority Muslim, to prefer uh, halal products because it helps them navigate through these changes. Because if I buy this product, if I watch this film, this Islamic film, if I listen to this Islamic program on radio, it would help me maintain my piety in facing these inevitable changes. But can you explain and make that link between that growing prosperity and the anxiety, what is the link between the two? Islam was largely suppressed during the New Order between 65 to 98, and Islamic politics have been contained. And some observers have called this the conservative Islamic turn when Islamic politics was permitted to permeate public spaces. And as they did, media industries marketing agencies, corporates, began looking into the Muslim as a market. And it's really difficult to say which is the driver, although I would argue that market mechanisms actually drive a type of consumption pattern that leans towards, as you consume, you would like to exert your religious identity, you would like to exert religious expression, Islamic expression, because it's very useful to hold on to certain religious values that can be more fixed. It feels more comfortable to hold on to your religion, religious values, your doctrines, amidst social insecurities, social changes. And that's how it kind of grew into a huge habitus in which Muslims, middle-class Muslims, prefer to consume Islamic halal products to maintain their piety amid these rapid changes. Is it mainly products? Are there other areas where halal consumerism actually spills over? What's the breadth of this phenomenon? It goes into all of the institutions that have been privatized throughout the 30 years. It goes into finances, banking. You have Islamic banking that help Muslims save money to do the Hajj. There are vast examples in the media sector from Islamic films, Islamic television shows, Islamic television shows. In the early 90s, there were virtually none in popular television programs. Uh, they were mainly in the 90s uh, talking heads like evangelists, giving sermons. In early 2000s, there were Islamic horror shows, there was Islamic religious shows, Islamic melodrama. And in the early 2000s, it was contained mainly during the Islamic fasting month. But by the mid-2000s, it became mainstreamed into annual programming. So you can see Islamic melodrama on primetime 
four hours every day. It answers to a market demand. At the same time, it constructs a certain kind of Islamic morality that people feel is useful for them in their daily lives. And of course, these are commercial television stations as well. So advertising is important for them. And I suppose the advertisements that were broadcast had to comply or sit well with these television programs you've just mentioned. Did that drive halal consumerism as well when it came to the type of advertising and the types of products that then proliferated? Yes, exactly. So the market mechanism within it, there are brands, there are products, there are advertising, and the media acts as a, as an intermediary between brands, advertisers, and the market through these television programs. And you have this whole ecosystem of uh, halal consumerism because all of the institutions work well in monetizing this conservative turn. Television stations, which are not commercial, used to be public spaces controlled by the state, in which all of the religious groups acknowledged by the state had to have equal representations because it was crucial in nation building. And that moderation, that suppression, so to speak, when it was alleviated, then it went into the public spaces through market mechanisms, I would argue. You mentioned public spaces, and I'm really interested in the landscape, though. In public, what does more pious, more uh, moral look like in public now? I'll take the case of television to answer your question. In a popular Islamic melodrama, you can see that whenever the main character is facing turmoil, it could be losing his job, it could be not being able to pay hospital bills, basic issues that you can feel in any country in the world if you're part of the middle class. And uh, during those moments, usually the scenes change into a prayer scene in which the person does his pre-prayer washing and he puts on Islamic garments and uh, he would pray to God. Uh, It would be a a five-minute scene in which Islamic verses the audience can relate to. These scenes were produced through very careful group discussions by television station executives. And these scenes are actually the scenes that have the highest rating in which it continues to be reproduced on television. And these are the mechanisms that I think were crucial in reproducing Islamic morality you can see in the media and other sectors as well. So this is about practice and adherence to religious faith. What about fashion? There has yet to be research regarding how many uh, women are donning the hijab. But if you see that female Muslims are driving the fashion sector for the hijab fashion, Uh, you can really see the role of women in building this fashion consumer's culture. And Indonesian fashion designers are also now participating in global Islamic fashion weeks. They also have online communities. Uh, One of the most famous is called Hijabers. Female Muslims teach each other how to wear the hijab, how to combine your garments, what to wear in uh, public settings, in ceremonials, etc. So you can see that uh, not only through the uh, more established market uh, institutions, it also goes into informal spaces in which social media is crucial. I'm Clement Paligaru, and on Ear to Asia, we're talking with Indonesia media analyst Dr. Inayat Rahmani about how Indonesia's Muslims have bought into consumerism and neoliberal economics while simultaneously becoming more conservative and pious. 
Now, on May 9th, 2017, Jakarta's outgoing governor, Basuki Chahaya Purnama, also known as Ahok, was sentenced to two years in prison for blasphemy. Ahok was the Indonesian capital's first Christian and ethnic Chinese governor since the 1960s. The charge of blasphemy was filed by several conservative Islamic groups after a statement he made on his re-election campaign trail went viral on YouTube. Indonesia saw some of the largest protests in its history as a result of the allegations against Ahok. Now, after that video was published, hundreds of thousands of Indonesians marched in the streets of the capital demanding his arrest. Now, in your research, you make the connection that the Ahok case arises from the changing consumption patterns of a rapidly growing middle class of Muslim Indonesians. We'll discuss Ahok's case in a bit, but you mentioned the inequality earlier on and poverty still coexisting with the middle class. Now, as large numbers of Indonesians become upwardly mobile, do the poorer Muslims get left behind because they can't participate in halal consumerism? Market mechanisms has a way to permeate all sections of society. So if they are, by definition, lower middle class, then they would still be able to spend money on leisure activities. So in the case of Jakarta, there are shopping malls that sell brands according to the class that they target. So it doesn't mean that the lower middle class are excluded from the halal consumer's culture. They have different sets of brands that they can afford. You can tell their social statuses by the way they dress, but it doesn't mean that they are excluded from the market, from the halal experience. And yet at the same time, could the halal experience or halal consumerism be actively driving a wedge somehow between the wealthier middle class and the lower socioeconomic classes? Yes, of course, because the amount of money you spend uh, goes out in the brands that you buy. And it is a symbol, a status symbol, through which Muslims, like middle classes all around the world, can show their religious identity at the same time their social status. So it does indeed drive a wedge. What's unique here is that what's driving a wedge is not the kind of Islamic doctrine that they believe in, but the kind of status symbols that they can express in public spaces. How do the poor then view this ever-growing middle class? Yeah, I think this is why uh, the anti-Ahok demonstrations or the, it's called Aksi Bela Islam or the action to defend Islam was really appealing because it gave an illusion that these wedges did not exist because we're all Muslims, we're part of a community, we're part of an ummah, and when our religion is attacked, then we should band together. But the thing is, on a daily setting, these middle classes, they don't interact much with people outside of their social class. But in participating in that mass demonstration, defending your religion, it gave a sense of community that is absent in their daily settings. That's why the movement, I think, was appealing for the middle class. Well, at Independence, Indonesia enshrined plurality in its state philosophy of Pancasila. It was aimed at resolving conflict between different groups. Can you tell us more about Pancasila and how it serves to ensure stability? Pancasila was a doctrine that was enshrined during the independence, and it was crucial for the anti-colonialist struggle. 
throughout the New Order, it was a doctrine that was reproduced through national curriculum, through the moral civil codes that we had to abide to, whether civil servants or students in state national schools. Paradoxically, it also contained the kinds of cultural representation that can emerge in public spaces because the religious groups, the ethnic groups that can appear in national television or national curriculum had to go well with modernization projects by the state as part of state developmentalism. So religious groups that are animist, for instance, that are indigenous, are underrepresented because it does not go well with economic growth, for instance. On one hand, Panchasila enshrined plurality. At the same time, it contained the kind of diversity that can be represented in public spaces. The condition we have today is actually a continuity of that because the kind of Islamic uh, morality that can appear in public spaces are still mainly middle class, modern, consumerist, um, economically productive, able to consume products that maintain a certain social status. So how would you describe what neoliberal market-driven economics is doing to Panchasila? Today what we see, especially with the anti-Ahok demonstrations and you have the pro-Ahok demonstrations, the middle class who fight for plurality, but the kind of diversity that they imagine is problematically linked to the type of national imagination that was contained under the Suharto regime. So groups that are not modern, groups that are not urbanized, are largely outside of the plurality that is imagined. So if you're an Indonesian citizen, whether you're advocating for Islamic morality or if you're vouching for plurality, both of those political views are contained by authoritarian legacies and then through neoliberal reorganization of society. How would you describe the diversity of groups in Islamic Indonesia, in Muslim Indonesia, and how is that being impacted by what's happening, this this trend we've been discussing? Indonesian Muslims are actually very, very diverse. The two main organizations, Nahdatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah, Nahdatul Ulama has been fighting for the pluralist discourse, whereas Muhammadiyah has been fighting for more modernized version of Islam. But then you have the everyday Muslims who are not aligned to any large political group or Islamic organization that kind of goes about their daily lives with Islamic rituals. But if we go back to the market mechanisms, these are the Muslim middle classes who demand a mosque in a shopping mall. These are the kinds of Muslims that demand more upscale Islamic boarding school or Islamic school for their children. They are the Muslims who demand Islamic housing compounds. And this contributes to a kind of segregation that is enabled by the market that marginalizes religious minorities, other religious groups in their daily lives. So uh, Asaf Bayat said that these are kind of uh, a passive piety, political consequences of apoliticism. So it may seem as if consumerism is mundane or it has no direct consequences to politics. But in the case of Indonesian Muslim middle class, it does have direct consequences to the political trajectory of the country. And what implications does this embrace of Islamic morality have for religious minorities in Indonesia? I think what's important to note is 
the fact that this is not a case of monolithic Islam, so to speak, marginalizing other religions. It's the way neoliberal economy is organizing our society. So along with religious minorities, you have the poor, you have different sexual orientations, you have women, you have children, so you have the disabled, you have all social groups that are marginalized by the kind of economy that celebrates productivity. So it's not enough to speak about how conservative Islamic values have marginalized religious communities or religious groups. We need to also speak of the ways that neoliberal society actually marginalizes all types of groups who can't participate in the economy. And without a sound social security plan by the state, then we would find ourselves in a situation in which political views are actually vulnerable to be manipulated by the elite every time we have an election. Inaya, what challenges do you face in researching these areas? Actually, the main challenges have been economic constraints because Indonesia does not have much research funding into academic basic research. Without that, without international collaboration, for instance, it would be difficult to do academic research that is uh, rigorous and theoretically informed. So as other public institutions, state universities are also constrained. So that's the main constraint. The second is actually because I'm researching my colleagues, the people I live with, and it's basically participant observation. I'm trying to understand uh, the society we live in. At the same time, trying to communicate your evidence to people is difficult because it's like giving a mirror and not many people want to uh, see that. Why did you decide to study Islamic consumerism in Indonesia? Because I was smack in the middle of the change. I was a new order child (laughs) and I was raised as a Muslim. I experienced uh, Islamic education for several years and national education and I see that contradiction. So it's a way to unlearn the things that have been instilled in myself and perhaps my peers uh, as a critical exercise, uh, hopefully for the next generation to not repeat the same legacies that was inherited to us. Ina, many thanks for your time on Ear to Asia, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kalman, and thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Indonesia media analyst Dr. Ina Rahmani about how Indonesia's middle class is adapting consumerism to be in harmony with their increasingly conservative religious values. E2Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of E2Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. E2Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2017, the University of Melbourne. I'm Clement Paligaru. Thanks for your company.